Good evening and welcome to this National Library of Scotland uh, Donald Dewar Lecture and it's my privilege to introduce uh, Andrew Marr. Um, I'm Ian McQuarter from the Sunday Herald by the way and my principal claim to fame as I always bore Andrew with saying is that I discovered his broadcasting ability giving him his first real break in broadcasting. This was a, a program I produced for Radio Scotland called Corridors of Power about 20 years ago and we invited him, he was then working for the the Scotsman, as a relatively junior uh, political correspondent, we invited him to come on and do um, a witty and coruscating political diary, which he did instantly um, and very well. Um, unfortunately for Andrew, it's been downhill all the way <laughs> since then. <laughs> and he's had to, to scrape a living as one of the country's foremost political commentators um, and then editor of, the, of various uh, publications, including The Independent, of course. Um, then Latterly, BBC political editor. He had previously been political editor of The Economist. He's certainly been around. Now he's presenting television programmes and producing uh, very large, increasingly large books to go along with <laughs> increasingly large television series. And his latest, of course, is Andrew Marr, um, A History of Modern Britain, which uh, accompanied a television programme series of the same name. And it's a very witty and humane and intelligent, intelligent as you'd expect, account of... Um, modern uh, British history, which concludes really with um, almost a uh, uh, kind of uh, welcome uh, acceptance that Britain is still here, despite all the attempts and all the forecasts of its disintegration and breakup. The United Kingdom certainly still has some kind of political and cultural reality. It's capable of a degree of cultural renewal. Now, this is a progress from Andrew's earlier work in 2000, when, uh, which was ca called The Day Britain Died, when uh, he was then envisaging that the problems like the West Lothian question, the, the rise of English nationalism, was going to cause serious problems for the United Kingdom. Now, of course, since this book has been published, we have had the election of uh, uh, a nationalist government um, in Holyrood, which, of course, changes the character of the debate um, entirely. And what Andrew is going to talk to us tonight principally about is um, the evolution of nationalism as he's experienced it himself since his early days as he describes it a far left, a almost Trotskyist nationalist, how that evolved, how he um, unlearned that, how he became um, more engaged with um, the United Kingdom and the politics of the UK. So I give you Andrew Marr. Thank you. Ian, thank you very much indeed for that. Um, uh, it's absolutely true that uh, Ian is to blame um, for me arriving in front of a microphone in the first place, and uh, he may well live to regret it. Um, I, I have various disabilities. One is that I can't sit down and think at the same time, and so I'm going to stand. Um, and the other one is that, another one is that, I think it goes back to school, I find it almost impossible um, to sit and listen to somebody reading something out. Um, it drives me alm almost insane with boredom. So with your um, permission, I'm going to be talking off the cuff um, tonight, extempore, though I have thought quite closely about what I'm going to say. Um, if I'd had a, uh, a title for tonight, and it is the Donald Dewar Memorial Lecture, a great privilege um, to be standing here and delivering something um, under the, the banner of a man I regarded as a very, very fine human being and an excellent politician too, but a very fine human being first and foremost. My wife took me to task for describing him in that book uh, as looking like a dyspepsic heron. Um, <laughs> she said it was cruel, but I think it was accurate and I think he would have, he would have understood the spirit in which it was said. I, I think he would. Uh, um, at any rate, if I'd had a title, it would have been uh, Home Thoughts from Abroad, because I'm now based in London, have been for a long time, and it's absolutely clear to me that um, we are all of us, even in this age of the internet and the ethernet and um, uh, the virtual realities that surround us, we're all very much formed in our views uh, by where we live. Geography matters a surprising amount even now. I am a different person in London to what I am here. 
Um, I spend quite a lot of my time down in Devon in the west country of England, and I'm a slightly different person there as well. Geography, place, matters. And so when I say home thoughts from abroad, um, I'm obviously raising the question as to whether London is abroad, uh, so far as the Scottish audience is concerned. Now, um, my conclusion um, will be that it is not yet, but if the opinion polls bear any kind of relevance at the moment, then it's very likely to be abroad, at least in some sense. I think that moment, when, when the question is asked in an opinion poll, what do you think is going to happen? It's a very, very important question. And the fact that 60, 61% at the weekend said that they thought Scotland would eventually become independent is in many ways more significant than the answers people give to the question of how you would vote now. Um, and pollsters, uh, proper pollsters, sophologists with experience will explain why that does matter. But it, it, it was a significant moment, I thought. Um, but having said that geography matters, I want to start off by talking about where I come from in a different way, where I come from politically, because um, this is not purely out of ego. Um, I will explain why I think it matters as this goes on. Um, I come from a family which was, with one minor exception, wholly Scottish, so far as we can go back. I was uh, born and brought up in Scotland. When I went south to university, I had been out of Scotland during my entire life for less than a week. I was as saturated in Scottish politics and culture as it's possible for a 17-year-old to be. And I came from quite a political family. It was a unionist, now would be called conservative family. My great-grandfather was uh, the last unionist Lord Provost of Glasgow. And um, I, my earliest political memories was being stuck in the back of my mother's car as she fruitlessly chased votes around the byways of um, uh, Perthshire. As a boy, being pointy-headed and um, obsessive about reading, I read my way through Scott's Tales of a Grandfather. I read my way through D.K. Broster and Nigel Tranter and latterly John Preble. And I absorbed the kind of pith and marrow of what I would call um, romantic, close to racial nationalism. In the sense that when I drew pictures um, of battles or had my little model soldiers, it was always the Scots against the English. I had absorbed um, really quite deep down the notion that the English were arrogant, devious, unpleasant, not to be trusted, um, and very alien. It's a kind of nationalism I look back on now with intense embarrassment. It is so pernicious and stupid that Mel Gibson is its standard bearer um, <laughs> around the world. Possibly, possibly the stupidest man in Hollywood. Um, but then I, I, I grew up a little bit and I moved forward and I um, discovered um, the sort of Scottish socialist tradition and I became a left-wing, if not nationalist, a left-wing home ruler. I discovered, I came through it through literature, I came through McDermott and, uh, and other writers who I discovered when I was at school. And that was something that stayed with me for quite a long time. I was an enthusiastic supporter of the campaign for Scottish Parliament and Radical Scotland and all that group of people who in the 1980s um, campaigned for a Scottish Parliament and many of them for independence, but for a clear purpose. What they wanted, what we wanted, was a socialist Scotland. And there was a sense that Scotland was a distinct and different country. And I think you can trace this all the way back. I think what uh, has happened to, to Scotland, and this is a very, very brief um, and crude uh, precy, is that um, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, um, Scotland grew up in the sense of regarding itself as a particular, special, um, devout um, nation. Scotland was going to be the good Protestant nation, the good Protestant country. 
And because of the Act of Union and the importance of the Kirk uh, for so many hundreds of years as the voice of um, Scottish opinion, um, this sense of the chosen people, the chosen, God's chosen nation, stayed quite deeply connected to uh, Scottish identity. Of course, that happened in a way that would now be considered completely unacceptable. Um, it was violently uh, anti-Catholic. There'd have been no John Reed in high office in those days, um, or many of the others. But nonetheless, it was, it was very closely connected to a sense of Scottish identity. And I think what happened in the 20th century, uh, it's, it's not my phrase, it's a well-known phrase, is that um, we, we, we got spilt religion. This sense of the godly nation, the godly people, spilt out into politics. And the, the very, very assertive, aggressive, um, and often self-righteous strain of Scottish socialism established itself with the same sort of firmness that the Presbyterian hegemony had. Um, and it happened very, very fast. And so the myth of Red Clyde's side, which is partly a myth, partly true, um, and the sense that Scotland was just basically more democratic because of the declaration of our growth. Um, than the English or anybody else was more egalitarian, was more open uh, and liberal to outsiders. And there's a few asylum seekers probably in the tower blocks of Glasgow who could take issue with that these days. Um, but this, this became quite rooted, and that was the purpose behind a lot of the Home Rule movement. And the question that I want to ask now, having been away for such a long time, is when it comes to the Home Rule nationalism debate so lively, um, so of the moment now, the bit that seems to me to be missing is what's it for? Why would an independent or a home rule Scotland be better and different? Now, I think there are some very interesting answers to that, but what I find quite bemusing looking at it from a distance is that the, the essence, if you like, of the politics, which is, what is the vision, the different vision of Scotland that is worth campaigning for and getting hot under the collar about? What is it like in terms of its tax base, in terms of its universities and schools and education and architecture and the way society fits together? That part of the argument seems to me to have been pushed to one side so that we can have more of a rancorous and, I think, ultimately uh, rather demeaning argument about the exact detail of who pays for what and the precise details of voting systems. So there are two different ways towards whatever happens next. One is a series of, as I say, rather demeaning arguments about um, whether English voters are paying slightly too much or too little towards the care of some 90-year-old uh, woman in a home in Argyllshire, um, whether the precise number of Scottish MPs at Westminster is judged to accurately reflect the power of devolution and home rule north of the border. And all the many arguments around, for instance, the latest one would be what happens to um, the various subsidies uh, around um, council tax, if council tax is abolished in Scotland. All those sorts of um, second-order political arguments which brim up and fill up the national media and the papers become the only thing that you can hear. And the question is, what's it for, is pushed to one side. And this is happening at a time when um, the whole notion of political progress is um, less supported less enthusiastically endorsed than at any time in modern history. I think the most important political thinker at the moment is a man called John Gray. I don't know how many of you know of John Gray's writings. He's hugely provocative. Um, I find myself screaming with rage quite often as I read books like Straw Dogs and Black Mass. But in essence, what he argues is that the notion of progress um, in an Enlightenment sense, partly invented in Scotland, which has driven so much politics, um, ranging from Marxist politics through to George Bush's neoconservatism, 
um, and hence the Iraq war, is an utter delusion. There is no progress. There is no final state at which we will uh, end up when we know how the world is put together, when we have knowledge, and when we know uh, the proper relationship of um, different classes and people inside societies to each other, when we've got it sorted. That's never going to happen, he says. And I think it's interesting that his books are hugely popular, particularly with young people at the moment, because um, we have gone through a period when politics um, as a trade, as something to support, has never been as unpopular. Political parties have tiny memberships now. Um, politicians have very, very um, low status in society. And of course, the great irony is that the Scottish Parliament has come about at that very moment. At the very moment when people appear not to regard politics, parliamentary politics, seriously, Scotland finally gets a parliament. Oops! And I think some of the problems that have occurred over the last few years have been for that reason. However, um, and here's the last sort of major point that I want to make before we open it up for discussion and, and challenge. Um, I think things are changing. In, in the book that uh, Ian referred to, the, the history book, basically what I was saying about the history of Britain from 45 to now is that it was the defeat of politics by shopping. What happened was we were given a whole series of political visions, New Jerusalem, the new Elizabethan age, the technocratic, white-hot heat society of Wilson, and so on. And indeed, Thatcher's remoralized Grantham vision. And on every occasion, we said, no thanks, we'll carry on. We, what we want is stuff. We want lots of nice, bright, shiny, um, colorful stuff, please. That's what we really want. Stuff your politics. Um, however, at the end of that period, I think we're in a new place for some very hard, practical, and obvious reasons. I think that, um, and I, I, this is in declining order, so the, the least important issue probably at the moment in a sense is terrorism, but it's a big issue. And therefore, the security of people and the, the re-emergence of the security state. Um, there is the burning problem of the very, very large number of people at the bottom of the heap who simply aren't uh, getting any better off, aren't being educated, um, the good society problem. And right at the top of the list, uh, there is climate change, which I think um, is such a big issue that politics has barely begun to grasp how big the change is going to need to be in, in how we live our lives, how we're taxed, how we behave. Some of the choices that people are going to have to be forced to confront are so horrible for um, nervous democratic politicians that they just don't want to think about it. And yet, we're all going to have to think about it. And therefore, for these reasons, politics is coming back in a big way. I can see the beginnings or the bones of an argument about a new form either of home rule or nationalism. And I'm not sure how great the difference is ultimately going to be, by the way, um, which would go back to the Scottish exceptionalism um, which would make the case for Scotland being a particularly um, different country. I could see, for instance, one of the great issues in front of uh, everybody today is the, the struggle to increase educational standards. Um, the West is falling further and further behind. I mean, I don't know if... I, I, all these things are anecdotal. We live by anecdote. But I remember being in a, in a plane not so long ago uh, on a long-haul flight and um, there was a Chinese woman and two or three Chinese kids in the row in front of me. And it was an overnight flight. Most of the flight was sleeping. These kids had maths books open. And the minute they nodded, their mother hit them across the head. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, we do have a problem. Um, I go back to um, this great book, Dem The Democratic Intellect, which some people here will, will know, by George Davey, in which he talked about the vast success of Scottish universities in the 19th century, when Scotland really was the most intelligent, most educated, advanced place on the planet. And one of the things, one of the reasons for that was that in the four-year Scottish university course, the first year was uh, engaged in every student being taught philosophy so that they understood how to think 
before they then moved on to what they were going to think about. Um, Scottish universities were distinct from any other kind of universities at the time. Um, for quite a long time, Scottish schools had a similarly distinctive reputation. Now, all of that has gone. Scottish schooling, Scottish universities are regarded as just another part of the sort of mediocre mush uh, across the Western world most, most of the time. And I wonder where the, the political and educational intellectual drive to turn that around and to make Scottish universities the kind of places that are talked about you know, across, the, across the world. Where is that going to come from? You, if you turn to climate change, Scotland has particular problems and particular advantages. It has the particular problem of being a relatively northerly, sp relatively sparsely inhabited part of the country where therefore the costs of getting power and the cost of moving people around uh, are relatively high. And yet at the same time, it's large swathes of Scotland are relatively clean, empty. It's surrounded by all the sources of renewable energies that other um, much more populated, densely packed southern states would love to have. Um, there are the, the, I can see the beginnings of a radically different kind of Scottish energy policy. Now, those are just personal examples, and they may be the wrong ones. But where is the discussion which starts from there, which says, we want to be governed in this particular way because we want to get to this place. We want to be this kind of society. We want to be different. Not simply because we're cross about the English, we're cross about this, we're cross about that, but we have a bigger vision. And I suppose my plea at the end of this is that we have that kind of discussion about Scotland's political future and not the kind of discussion that's about percentages and subsidies and the voting systems of different lines of um, uh, different tiers of government. Because if I can sum up where I think we've got to in this very interesting period of Scottish politics, I would say that Scottish nationalism has not demonstrated why. And unionism, interestingly, has not demonstrated why not. Thank you. Thanks very much, Andrew, for those observations. Just, just picking up on your point there, before we uh, broaden the discussion, your point there, what's it for, mm. and the decline of the socialist tradition. I just wonder if that you know, socialist tradition has declined as much as you suggest it has, and what, it, what it's for may be to do with things like, well, defending basic kind of social democratic uh, principles in Scotland, free um, tuition fees, free personal care, things like that. As we know, the the modern home rule movement really, de really dates from the poll tax, doesn't it, under Thatcher, when people were so offended mm. by this idea of taxation, which, you know, mm. the dustman paid as much as yep. a duke. They felt in Scotland you had to have a democratic, a political defence against that kind of thing. And that, that yes. in a sense, it was defending those kinds of social democratic values which led to the, the modern home rule movement. You, what do you think yes, of that? Yes, I, mean, I would point out, um, in defence of my adoptive land, um, as it were, that, that the, the anti-poll tax movement was ferocious in, in England uh, as soon as it bit there as well. Um, there wasn't a real difference, I think, in, in, in attitudes to poll tax between Scotland and England. Um, I think that um, certainly the, the notion that Scotland was going to be a distinctively socialist um, country has gone. Um, the SSP, you know, is not the ILP even, never mind, never mind anything else. Um, and, you know, I would point to the number of people who bravely stood up and said they were going to take on Wendy Alexander um, from the left. Um, not many. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I do think it's changed. In a curious way, um, and this is, this, is when, this is me talking as a commentator, not as a, you know, not in my own voice, but if, if you think um, of what Gordon Brown's been doing recently, it may well be that, an, I mean, entirely unwittingly, he may be helping Alex Salmond in the sense that if the, the fear of nationalism was going to be that there would be a sort of high-taxing, social democratic, but sort of um, besieged Scotland with a, a neoliberal England where everything was terribly rapacious and, and tough, but nonetheless the kind of 
the entrepreneurs and the high, the, 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 the high um, wealth people were sucked south. Well, actually, you look at what Gordon Brown's trying to do in England, it's not going to be that way. We're going to have two quite similarly social democratic, um, I, I would say, I would call it sort of social market states um, side by side uh, if, if that happened. And just as a thought experiment, slightly, if I may say so, with great respect to both gentlemen, unpleasant thought experiment. You can imagine Alex Salmond and Gordon Brown politically naked, unclothed, standing side by side. Um, and you ask questions about their attitude to tax, to education, to universities, to health, public health issues. How different would they look? Not perhaps all that different, but there would be subtle differences. The other answer to the, you know, what's it for question, which the nationalists or home rulers might make, is that it's altering the terms of trade within the UK, intriguingly. That it's a question of people up here who don't like their children having to go and get jobs in London, who don't like his Scotland's low historic growth rate, and basically want to, to bring Scotland up to the kind of levels of the South East of England and see these political institutions a way, as a way of doing that. Judging by most Western countries, the only way that you sort of quickly boost the growth rate is either by a massive increase in public spending, so you're, you're bringing in the jobs and you're bringing in the work, which involves a pretty hefty tax rise, or by going the other way, which is to go sort of neoliberal slash tax rates. Do what the Irish do, which is say, if you're very, very rich, we love you, come here, and we won't ask you to pay tax. We'll, you know, we'll make it very, very comfortable for you. Now, I see nobody um, on the nationalist side or the Labour Party side prepared to go in either way at the moment on those. Well, the, as you know, the, the SNP policy is to reduce corporation taxes and to try to emulate you know, the Irish Republic's economic programme combined with trying to emulate the Scandinavian economic program. And I don't see that the two go terribly cleverly together. Um, yeah. it's, it's a strange, it's a strange um, maybe it's a brilliant balancing act, but I, I remain to be convinced. Um, and of course, the other thing, is, as we all know, is that the Irish, the luck of the Irish, um, they were there when, when Brussels was desperate to push lots of subsidy towards, um, towards them. And I don't think that's, the case is going, that's going to be the case with Scotland, which is not these these are not these not arguments against nationalism, only to say that the question this is this is this is the argument we should be having the discussion mm. we should be having yeah. what what are the practical differences that we want to follow? Yeah, well, um, and, as I say, and, it's uh, and, uh, with the SNP. I'm not. I'm, it sounds like a party political. I'm just trying to sort of clarify the debate by putting the position that perhaps they would see it or home rulers would see it that there are a whole range of policies, they are actually defining the way in which Scotland is a, is, is a different culture and different politically and socially. And you have things like free tuition, you know, free higher education, uh, abolition of tuition fees, free prescription charges, things like that, free personal care, which of course was a result of the, the Sutherland report, which was, which was rejected south of the border, but has been introduced north of the border. And then incrementally, if you like, these amount to um, you know, showing that Scotland is, has a distinct uh, political space. And there's absolutely no doubt that, that, that Alex Salmond, who um, I, you know, I first came across way, way back when he was chief economist, deputy chief economist of the Royal Bank of Scotland, absolutely brilliant performer then. Um, he, has, he, has ab, you know, he has a fantastic first hundred days. And, and you know, it's, it's absolutely clear that he's played it very, very well. But you just said free, 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 free. Um, if, if the logic is followed to full independence, then somebody has to pay for free, 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 free. And if somebody has to pay for free, 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 that's not consistent with let's go for a low tax economy and, you know, and slash tax rates and get growth that way. That's the only point I'm making. Yeah, and um, these are actually interesting. The, those specific examples relate to Labour because they were introduced by the previous mm. Lib Lab administration rather than the, the SNP. So it's, it's, a, you know, it's a kind of cross-party uh, thing. This. But look, just looking at the constitution, looking at the... The situation I mentioned that, you know, between 2000 and when you said that, you know, the day Britain died and 2007, you become rather more optimistic, I think, about the state of the UK or rather more ben benign well, about it. it. What do you think about it now, though, since there is an SNP government here? Do you think that it's going to continue? What I, what I said in that and in the, in, in the TV programmes about the union, um, which is, I certainly don't resile from, was when every, every time I come home to Scotland, and I still say home, um, and I read the papers and I look at the news and I talk to people, I think London seems rather more than 400 miles away. 
And I feel that there is a kind of separation taking place, mental separation taking place. And the wholly inelegant metaphor that I used was that it's a bit like when you um, badly cut a piece of pizza. It, 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 you're pulling it apart, and it's actually divided underneath, but it's still held together by strings of molten cheese. And that's sort of where I feel we've got to. Um, my optimism, or my benign uh, feelings that you describe about, about Britain are all to do with Britain having confronted a series of extraordinarily serious problems back in the 70s, back in the 60s, you know, the threat of Armageddon, the threat of um, uh, utter economic mayhem and collapse, the threat of extreme political takeovers of left and right. One by one, they've been dealt with and, hey, we're all still here and moving on. I think it's consistent to be, as it were, optimistic about that and to say that um, I think it's very likely that Scotland and England will have a completely different relationship in the future. I don't think that means the end of Britain, by the way. I think unless the Welsh go off and the Northern Irish go off, and certainly the Welsh, then Britain will carry on. It won't be England, it'll be Britain. Will there Scotland. be an English parliament? It'll be a British parliament, you see. I mean, I, I, mean I, I don't necessarily think that if Scotland became independent, that just leaves England. It's a little more complicated than that. No, but before you were thinking that you know, the demands for, uh, for an English, an I, English I, political well, dimension would, when, would when probably lead to something, something like an English poem or something which certainly dealt with it specifically English legislation. The, the really interesting moment is if at the next election uh, Labour win a majority um, or there's even a Lib Lab majority at Westminster, but the Tories have a majority in England, what then happens? And under those circumstances, the calls for English votes for English laws, as they say, inside Westminster, I think we're very, very hard to resist. Right, good. Well, let's see if we can spread the pizza a little bit wider now. And we've got, um, we should have microphones at both sides of the hall. Uh, now, people could give indications uh, that they'd like to come in, preferably not uh, offensive ones. We'll try and get you in as, as quickly um, as possible. Now, who is up here first? This gentleman uh, here. If we wait a second till we get the microphone to you. Are we working? Mr. McQuarter, a slightly cheeky one, but uh, you referred to terms of trade between Scotland and England. Terms of trade is normally the ex ratio of export to import prices, where you were talking mainly about social subsidies, free this, free that. I was so talking metaphorically, really, but... Ah, uh, but you shouldn't use terms of trade. Well, okay. Uh, sorry, do you have anything to ask uh, Andrew about? Uh, Andrew, Marr is, Andrew Marr is pointing out your economics might be a bit shaky. Well. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. They um, obviously are. Thank you. Right. Well, I think we'll take that as read that my economics are shaky. Let's take another question. This, this gentleman up here. Um, I, I see devolution... Or Hollywood at the moment is an unstable state therefore if we don't go to full independence we have to go back to the union we used to have which there's absolutely no movement towards that should should we not be trying to move back to union to avoid independence if if that's what people want is that what people want well, uh, I mean if I can yeah. jump in I mean I was in favor of a Scottish Parliament and from London looking north and coming, coming up here quite a lot, I observed with growing sort of dismay all the arguments about the cost of the Parliament, um, the endless arguments about MSP's expenses, uh, the various tawdry uh, Toon-Kunstler style scandals of one kind or another, and I thought, my God, you know, maybe the whole thing is just going down the tubes. But, you know, if you take uh, and it's not the only poll. If you take the Sunday Times poll at the weekend, 9% of people don't want the Scottish Parliament. Um, so it does, something seems to be stabilizing. I, I, I take your point that um, given the, the nature of the, the settlement, it's unstable. Life is unstable. Every person in this room is unstable. I'm unstable. Um, but um, I don't think it's clear that um, there is an inevitable push forward to independence, that might very well happen, um, but it's in, you know, it's in the laps of voters. And at the moment, there seems to be a sort of a rush of blood to the head about, you know, the first hundred days have gone pretty well. Alex Salmond has done very, very well in some pretty tough um, close calls with uh, the Glasgow uh, uh, bombing and elsewhere. Ergo, 
Scotland is going to be independent. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. I think there's going to be you know, a lot of arguments to be had between here and there. Next question. And it'd be helpful if people can identify themselves where possible. You can stay anonymous if you wish. But. I, I think I'd better say who I am, Ian. Um, Robin Harper, uh, Scottish Parliament. Um, <laughs> um, I, I'd like to start by, by just saying that, and this is not party political, this is a deeply held personal view, um, that if we are going to vote on independence, it shouldn't be on whether we're to become a rich consumer society and all the promises that are made there, or even the Green Party view that uh, this would give us an opportunity to become a sustainable society, but simply because, because we want to be independent. As simple as that. That should be the question that should be posed. But you, um, uh, Andrew, issued a direct challenge, mm. and I've got my rector of Aberdeen University hat on here. Mm. Who is going to lead on the debate um, mm. about Scottish education yes. and about saving um, th that, that, that wonderful vision of a liberal education uh, that, that led mm. Scottish university uh, education for so, uh, so many decades? Well, um, Professor Duncan Rice the principal of Aberdeen University is opening that very debate I'm about whether it's Aberdeen uh, should try to continue that um, tradition. And I'm backing him to the hilt on well, that. Well, can I just say that's wonderful. Let there be in Aberdeen a university which challenges and offers something to students they don't get elsewhere in an ordinary university. And that is the way forward, I'm absolutely sure. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, and I'd welcome your help with that. <laughs> Pass it forward. Um, you seem to infer that the, the real action is actually elsewhere. It's not in the United Kingdom. That moving away from the American hegemony that we've all enjoyed you know, over the last 30 years, we're moving into new territory now. Could you say a little bit more about that, how you see the next 20 years panning out in terms of the growing ascendancy of China, the economic and financial muscle, and also the unsustainability of the, the, the whole American way that we thought would live through our lifetime and our children's lifetime at least, but no longer the, perhaps the case. Um, it's a big one, that one. Empires uh, rise and fall, and when any um, global power is heavily, heavily overborrowed, um, and is fighting, as it were, one Boer War too, more, too, too, too far, um, that's when you expect the sudden contraction to come. Um, and the main thing I think I'd say about that is that uh, it's a sort of a defense point in a sense. I think the world is becoming more dangerous again, um, or more unpredictable again. Um, there's no doubt, if you, if, if you look at what China's doing in South America, what China's doing in Africa. No, the idea that China is going to simply be a kind of anonymous, subservient world factory churning out stuff without, and asking nothing back is fatuous. It's, it's, you know, China is, is growing much more powerful, um, as, are, as are some of the other uh, Far Eastern powers. Um, we, were talking, we were talking about independence. Let's, let, let's, let's be independent, yes or no. Well, the question is, what do we mean by independent? We're, we're none of us independent anymore. It's a question of which allies we choose and, and, and how we get on with them. I'm quite sure that the Iraq war, and this is, I don't think, a controversial point, uh, marks a moment. Um, we, we're never going to do something like that again. America's never going to do something like that again. It's not going to happen that way again. So maybe in Iran. <laughs> No, I think not in Iran. I just, I, well, yeah. <laughs> no, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Next question. Uh, Andrew, you asked what the Scottish independence was for. Yes. Well, of course, there are many answers to that, but just let me mention two of them. If we were independent, we should not be in the Iraq war, and we should not have nuclear submarines on the Clyde. Well, um, the, the second is certainly true. Um, very interesting whether independent Scotland would be part of NATO and what the relationship of an independent Scotland inside NATO would be to the Americans. I think these are thought experiments. Um, and uh, had there been a different leadership at Westminster, had there been a slightly different sequence of events at Westminster, Britain might not have been in the Iraq War either. So all I would say is that that, that part of it, I think, is arguable. Um, in, t in, term, in terms of submarines in the Clyde, I'm sure you're right. Next 
Andrew, with politics having such a poor reputation, do you think there are the people with the right intellect or vision going into politics that would take us into this new era? If I was world dictator, no, no, I'll, I'll step back a bit. I'm, that's that's too much. If I was if I was the dictator of of, of uh, the UK for a couple of days, I would cut the number of poli uh, elected politicians at Holyrood and Westminster by half and double their salaries, and that would be the most important political reform I could produce. Uh, Charlotte Mitchell, I'm Vice President of the Soil Association. Um, I'm really delighted that you say climate change is the most important thing we have to grapple with, but I'm keen to know what you think the British Parliament are actually going to be able to do about it. There are two levels of action that need to be taken, clearly. Well, there are many, but there are two obvious ones. You can't even begin to think about climate change if you're not negotiating at a global level. You have to have those Kyoto, Kyoto to etc. agreements. And one of the, as it were, pro-British points that one could make is that you know, the bigger uh, voice Britain has, the more it can do at that level. And I think, you know, to be fair to all of those involved, um, and I know very well that we, you know, we've failed um, to meet some of our domestic targets, nonetheless, Britain has been quite a vociferous arguer for climate change. It goes right the way back to Margaret Thatcher, actually, but, it's, but Britain's been a big player there. Domestically, it's much tougher, because if it's true that the amount, we, uh, the amount of carbon that we're all burning, ergo the amount we're driving in, in carbon-based cars, and the amount, we're, <laughs> amount of train journeys, never mind plane journeys, that we're using, and the amount of... If, if all of that's true, then we're going to have to... It's, it's not simply a question of carbon trading and um, set-asides and payoffs and this and that and life goes on as normal. We're going to have to change the way we live, you know, in quite a radical way. And it's going to be very difficult for all of us. It's I mean, because we're all, well, I am, at any rate, a hypocrite. You know, we, we're, we're worried about climate change and we still fly and we still do this and that. Somebody is going to have to start to make that change. I think it's going to be agonizing for, for the politicians yeah. and for us. As a member of the Scottish Parliament, can I please vote now for the double salary? Um, that's, that's, assuming, that's assuming you're still there, of course. <laughs> the, the serious question I wanted to ask was, was this point about inevitability that you started your lecture on, mm. about the, the very interesting poll that said that, as I remember yes. rightly, 21% said we want independence, but 61% said they thought it was going to happen. Yes. But there's a very interesting parallel here with... Uh, similar polls held throughout the 1990s on the question of Euro membership, when people were consistently asked, do you want to be a member of the Euro? And a very large majority said no. Do you think it's inevitable that Britain will join within 10 years? 60-70% said yes. Mm. And of course, nobody in their right mind, I think, would argue today mm. that Euro membership is inevitable. So surely, this is really nothing is inevitable. You know, our future is, is the way we make it. And a lot of this is really driven by the media who, at the moment, get very excited because we've got a new nationalist government. Um, they're talking about uh, independence. There are lots of polls, lots of essays. Commentators like Ian are producing essays on independence. And quite in a lot of independence. support from, from the Conservative Party, of which you're very Well, we are very open-minded, as you know, on and all these issues. Alex Salmond will be First Minister. Uh, so, so the, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate about this. And the media are all terribly interested. It, it drives the debate for a while. And then, just like the Euro, all of a sudden, the media as a pack will just get completely bored with this issue and drop it like a stone. Yeah, that's, fair, that's a fair, very fair point, particularly on the Euro. I mean, th the reason I was making the kind of what do you think will happen, what would you personally do point, is that very often when you're talking about the result of elections, like the result of elections, you get more of a pointer as to what's going to happen when you ask people what they think is going to happen than when you ask them what they're going to do. So that's, I mean, but, but, but on the Euro, you're absolutely right, of course. Um, can, before we go to another question, can I just get an indication of people up at the back who might be wanting to get in? I'm very bad at seeing people at the back. I just want to check. We can see how many and there are. There's one, is that two, the moment? Just one? Two up there. Two up at the far end. Fine. We'll get to you in a minute. Next question here, please. Uh, Alex Bath, uh, an, an immigrant from Englandshire, now living, now living in Dunblane. I would like your view on what John Forsyth is proposing, that they go for an election at the moment, or a referendum at the moment, and whether in fact we should go and be totally independent because it will be lost. 
I think you mean Lord Forsyth, Michael Forsyth? Yes. Yes. yes, yes. He's proposed that we should, there should be a referendum as the SNP are calling for. Well, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not my position to say whether there should or shouldn't be a referendum, except that... Um, Might it clear the air? Well, it, would, it, it, it seems a little early, I have to say, um, on the basis of 100 days of SNP... Um, administration to say, right, well, we've got to go take the decision now. Well, they're talking about 2010. Well, that seems, m yeah. that seems much more reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Thanks. Just question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get the, question, the microphone up the back. This question. Yeah. Yes, Andrew. Um, you talked about the low esteem in which politicians are, are held, and of course, only journalists and estate agents are possibly held in lower esteem. <laughs> in the light of that, I just wondered if you thought, um, what, what role you thought the media had to play and what responsibility they might have in moving the debate onto a higher plane and whether they're actually up to doing that. I'm not a great supporter of my own trade when it comes to the way we've dealt with politics over the last 10 years. I think that um, we, you know, we have been too fast to withdraw from um, reporting what is said, and we have been too ferocious in jumping on the personal. Um, I mean, I actually don't think that politicians' sex lives, unless they're extraordinarily active and, um, and, and full-time, um, have, 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 have a kind of direct bearing on, on their fitness to hold office. Most of the time, I don't really think it's our business um, or, or anybody else's business. Um, when it comes to, I mean, I, I, mean, I started my career um, in politics as a parliamentary correspondent for the Scotsman. I mean, the reason um, I went down to, to uh, England, I have to say, is I was chasing a woman, um, or, or she was reeling me in, or whatever. Uh, I never know with these fishing metaphors. At any rate, she, she held me up and took one look at me and threw me back. So she was probably... <laughs> she was probably... She was probably fishing, uh, as it were. But it, but it was a bigger pool. I was, in a, I was a small fish in a bigger pool. Anyway, um, where was I? Uh, <laughs> I can't remember. Um, I, I mean, I think... So that's what it's about. That's what it's about. No, I, I, you know, I, think, I think that... Um, sorry, I was going to say, I was a, yes, I know. I was a parliamentary correspondent. My job was to sit there and wait for any Scottish MP who stood up and said something, write down what it said, and we put it in the paper the next day. Now, we might have been a bit literal about it, but in those days, the Scotsman, every single day, carried a full broad pa a broadsheet page of what had been said in Parliament. Now, these days, it would be the Scottish Parliament, but that doesn't happen anymore. And I think, um, I, I mean, I'm a, an extreme sort of literal traditionist. I think we need to go back as a trade to reporting what politicians say a little bit more and commentating a little bit less. My name is John Dunn. I won't say what I do, but I, come, but I live in Brussels. I'm amazed that the word Europe hasn't been used. What role does Europe play in this whole debate? Um, well, I, did, I, I, said, I said Brussels, not Europe. But, um, what, what, first, first of all, um, it's a powerful, silent, uh, largely undiscussed, support for what is called uh, full independence because um, the absolutely 100% wide, widespread assumption is that an independent Scotland would be part of the EU and that therefore there would be an underpinning global structure which would answer some of the questions about where is Scotland's voice going to be in the councils of the world, where is Scotland's voice going to be there. Um, so it, it's important. If you put it anywhere on the scale of the argument, it's more towards the nationalist stroke home rule side than it is towards the unionist side, something very well understood in London. Um, there are huge numbers of interesting questions, not least um, would a, an, an independent Scotland go for the euro? We were discussing the euro a moment ago. Um, England certainly wouldn't. And you would then have two currencies circulating, you know, on either sides of the borders and all that. Um, Europe, you know, Europe is a big, a big and important part of this discussion. I agree. Next question. You touched on this briefly uh, while you were talking earlier on, but from a, on a pu purely selfish point of view, being from Northern Ireland, uh, how do you think the 
the changes in Belfast over the last six months, uh, and also thinking about Wales would genuinely be affected if Scotland did achieve independence in terms of their relationship to the rest of Britain? This is a punt, and it's a guess. Um, I think it would hasten the unification of Ireland. I, I, I mean, I think that if Scotland was entirely independent from England, then that very, very closely balanced argument about which way Northern Ireland will eventually go would be tilted a little bit more um, in the Irish direction. I can't, I mean, I, I'm not saying I, I think it's a good thing. I'm just saying I think that's probably what the effect would be. Uh, the Welsh would be in a particularly difficult position. Um, you know, Wales has, w was incorporated by England you know, 200 years before the Act of Scottish Union and has none of the civic institutions that Scotland has retained. Um, the Welsh would be in a, in a very, very uncomfortable place, I think. Um, and that's not something enough discussed. Um, I have to say that if um, you think that power is always a corrupter and a bad thing, and you look at the reputation for being sort of mavericks and aggressive and all the rest of it that both Ian Paisley and Alex Salmond have had over the years and look at the effect of power on them, um, it hasn't been entirely bad, has it? Much as I would like uh, the debate to be around the higher planes of education and other things, does it not ultimately come down to money in the widest sense? You said at the beginning that uh, it was a bit of a pity that we talked about subsidies here. But in our consumer society, is that not what actually people are interested in? How much is it going to cost? Well, the, the truth of the matter, it, it seems to me, is that although um, Scotland per capita might get an unfair um, rate of public expenditure as far as most English consumers are concerned. Because of the numbers of people involved north and south of the border, most people don't notice that. I mean, I, the, the number of people who can look at their tax bill and say, well, that's the bloody Scots, um, are very small. Um, and therefore, it's one of those issues that is made an issue by, by politicians, and I'm yeah, sure by people like myself asking questions. It didn't seem questions. so small a few years ago, though, did it? I mean, has that strange, actually? We've got a nationalist government in Scotland, and that, that whole thing, that whole, you know... You're quite right, it is strange. seems to have disappeared. Mm, it I is mean, strange. Or, or it's, it's gone down. Yeah. I don't quite know why it's disappeared, but you're absolutely right, it has. Um, I, you know, I, of course these arguments are going to have to happen. I mean, you know, in terms of, um, as, as I say, if, if the Scottish administration um, keeps as it were, spending public money on, on removing unpopular imposts of one kind or another. The question of who's going to pay for it is going to come up. Though, there is always the variable 3P, uh, which has been sitting there untouched, unused, undiscussed, but there it is, you know, and I think that's first in line for, for, for any such discussion. Um, no, my, I mean, I, I accept these things will come up. My point was simply that, you know, having been interested in this issue for so long, I'm slightly bemused by the lack of a discussion about the new Scotland and what it's going to look like out there. I noticed Lord Steele was, was shaking his head. Would you like to come in at some point? No? Okay, fine. Because Lawrence, he produced a report on tax, the options for taxation for Scotland. Next question. Um, yes, my question was about independence and the, the euro, but that seems to have been covered as far as we can, perhaps, unless you'd like to add anything. Um, and could, perhaps we could talk about the um, independence and the relationship with the monarchy. Yes, very interesting. Um, of course, Simon loves the Queen. Met her six times. He's very, they're very they're, <laughs> and, and she, I gather, is very keen on him. He was seen at the um, tattoo leading. He was seen at the tattoo last week, leading ten thousand people in singing "God Save the Queen." <laughs> um, <laughs> not all the verses, I suspect. No. Um, <laughs> well, this is, this is, I mean, this is clearly part of the strategy. It, it, it's going to be gradual, it's going to be gentle, it's not, nothing much is going to change. Um, 1603 and all that. And all of that. Um, I mean, it has been rightly said that a queen feels different from a king. And whether, whether it will, whether, you know, whether the, the, the completely relaxed, you know, post-Diana, post-political attitude to the monarchy still feels the same in 10 years' time. Who knows? Next question. 
Mr. Ma, you said that um, uh, I'm just an ordinary voter. Mr. Ma, you said that um, when you come to Scotland, you sense a, uh, a mental separation. Yes. Uh, which I understand. Equally, when I now go to London or the home counties, instead of the good-natured banter that used to exist between the Scots and the English, I sense a genuine resentment about the Scots, and they'd be quite happy to see the back of us. Um, I mean, I I get quite a lot of that. I get quite a lot of I get quite a lot of very very angry letters um, uh, saying exactly that. Usually, I mean, cast in broadcasting terms. You know, when will you and Jim Nochty f off back to Scotland, <laughs> uh, and all of that? Um, I mean, I think at the moment it is a small minority uh, view. Um, I don't see the flying of the St George's Cross everywhere as a threatening thing. Um, and by the way, I don't think, um, as is often argued that if independence for Scotland did happen, that England would be a kind of you know, extreme xenophobic, lurch to the right kind of state. Of course it wouldn't. It'd be exactly the same as it is now. I mean, it really wouldn't make that much difference um, to, to, to the way England felt. I think there are, you know, there are specific sensitive um, points. And as I said earlier on, I think if Labour was re-elected across the UK, but had lost the election in England, that would be a particularly difficult thing. Um, but, you know, I, I, I get lots of angry letters. Um, there, are, there is a very, very angry, I think at the moment still quite small minority. Um, to be honest, in anything constitutional arouses strong feelings among a very small minority. You know, most people don't think about these things at all. It's probably a good, you know, good for all of us. Final question. Um, well, you started your discussion on socialism in Scotland, um, but it's one of the things that hasn't actually been discussed further here today. Mm. Um, and I was really interested in the fact that you ranked the three most important issues facing Scotland as terrorism, social inequality and climate change in that order. And I was just wondering how you came about that order and how social inequalities was before <laughs> climate change and also although I wouldn't want to make the choice myself you you did actually make the ranking so I was wondering what you're thinking on that was and also how you think independence will move forward the tackling of social inequalities in Scotland which is possibly of most importance to Scots now um, well the order just to be absolutely clear went um, third terrorism Second, social inequality, top, climate change. And that's, that's a personal thing. Um, the, the reason I, I ranked it that way is that although terrorism is, a, you know, is an acute um, threat, it's one that can only be dealt with in a very sort of specific and narrow way that most of us have nothing to do with. I mean, it's not something that we can go out there and, and, and deal with ourselves. Um, there are big uh, foreign policy issues there about Britain's role in the world, which are well discussed. Um, and then there's the sort of preventative business that those who know about it get on with. That's why I, I put it down there. And, and also partly because um, so many people at Westminster always put it at the top. And I think, well, I, I, mean, I mean, if climate change is as they say it is, if the science is right, and there is an overwhelming um, uh, number of science, serious climate change scientists all on one side on this issue now, I think that you know it, it, you have to really make the case uh, that it's not happening. If it's happening, it's absolutely vast. You know, it is utterly going to change the way that humanity gets on on the planet. Uh, the number of people involved uh, run into many, many millions quite quickly, um, and we don't, we have, we're only beginning to touch the edges of what it's going to mean for all of us. Um, I think it's very hard not to argue that stop. I put social inequality there in the middle because it seems to me to be something that's been there, talked about for so long, and yet we still have a very, very large number of our fellow citizens who really haven't got much better off, who are still there stuck at the bottom, who are still very badly uneducated, who are still living lives uh, appallingly crime-ridden. And for all the fine talk, you know, for all the allegedly progressive politics and all the rest of it, their condition really hasn't changed. That's why I put it in. Okay, Andrew, thanks very much indeed for that fascinating Sorry. session. You've uh, covered an enormous amount of ground by answering these questions. Yeah. So
concisely and pertinently. I suspect we'll all be wondering what's it, what is it all for for many years to come, but I suspect you will also be regarded as the mozzarella and the pizza that keeps the two <laughs> parts of the United Kingdom, broadly speaking, together. Andrew will be in the book signing tent um, in a few minutes, signing copies of this very work, so you can continue the discussion with him then. So now, if you put your hands together, please, for Andrew Mark.